Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews, where we talk to our greatest movie makers about the art and craft of making movies. My name is Tim Malloy, and this week our guest is John Avnet. He is a writer, producer, director whose mini bio on IMDb is longer than most people's bio. His new film, Three Christ, stars Richard Gere as a psychologist trying to treat three schizophrenic men who all believe they're Jesus Christ. They're played by Peter Dinklage, Walter Goggins, and Bradley Whitford. Avnet is very good at casting as well as writing and directing. We did this interview in his office, surrounded by posters for all the films he's produced and directed, and we talked about a lot of them. He produced Tom Cruise's Breakout, Risky Business, uh, Fried Green Tomatoes, and Black Swan, among many others. He directed Fried Green Tomatoes and lots of other film and TV, including FX's Justified. We also spent a lot of time talking about his film Up Close and Personal with Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer, because it was written by John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion, one of my all-time favorite writers. Dunn wrote a fascinating book about the making of the film called Monster. And if you're at all interested in screenwriting and the movie business, I highly, highly recommend it. Monster by John Gregory Dunn. As we spoke, Avnet was hard at work on Four Good Days, a film he's producing that is directed by Rodrigo Garcia. It stars Mila Kunis as a woman dealing with addiction and Glenn Close as her mother who's trying to help her. And it premieres this Saturday at the Sundance Film Festival. By the way, if you're heading to Sundance, hit up movie maker publisher Deirdre McCarrick and me at MovieMakerMag on Twitter and Instagram. We'll do everything we can to get you a copy of our new issue because we are super proud of it. There's a cover story on Margot Robbie's production company, Lucky Chap, and it also includes our full oral history of American Psycho, a film that premiered at Sundance exactly 20 years ago. Uh, you can get a preview of that story, by the way, at MovieMaker.com. And if you like this podcast, you will probably like a lot of stuff on MovieMaker.com. And now, John Abnett. Well, congratulations on Three Christs. Thank you. What an ambitious movie. It is. It's ambitious. What made you want to take it on? The subject matter. I mean, I feel like schizophrenia is so misunderstood. Well, you know, you're answering the question with your statement there. And, uh, you know, when I was in college, I had wanted to be what would now be called a neuroscientist. And what I was specifically thinking of doing was studying, doing research on the brain and becoming a doctor who would have become a therapist whether it's psychiatrist or psychoanalyst, so I would be working on two worlds. One, the chemistry of the brain or the biology of the brain and meeting people, working with them, and hopefully being of assistance to them. Uh, I didn't succeed at my goal. Uh, I was actually a fairly good student, maybe a little precocious in some of the sciences, but I had problems with people who would get factual things wrong and my personality was not that good. <laughs> so I realized I may have a problem, you know, and even though I might have been able to get into a medical school, uh, I may not have been able to withstand the uh, people who told you what's right and they were wrong or oh, didn't wow. allow for, you know, a more uh, expansive view of thinking and possibilities. So it was just my personality. It was effectively a, a personality issue. Uh, so I had studied psychology and and a lot about the uh, the body, about chemistry, and the mind, and I was really interested in it. And I read a book by R.D. Lang called The Divided Self. Are you familiar with it? Not at all. It's really a, an interesting book about schizophrenia. And I had heard about this book by Dr. Rokich, Three Christ of Ypsilanti, and I thought the premise was really wild. Yeah. You know, three people who were paranoid schizophrenics who believed they were Jesus Christ put in a room to see what would happen. You know, would they be able to maintain their delusions or would they have to give them up? And uh, that was a long time ago. 1998, uh, I had a career as a director, 
and I was very pleased to have that career. Yeah. And I was offered uh, this book by Stephen Haft, who had been the producer of the uh, Dead Poets Society, which was a very good movie, in my opinion. And so I started working on developing it as a script, and uh, I found out from Dr. Sandra Bolrokich, the wife of Dr. Rokich, that a number of writers had tried to do this, and they all had failed miserably. And a number of them were very talented writers, far more talented than I would ever be. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so I hired somebody, and it just didn't work out. It was very daunting because you just had to understand enough about paranoid schizophrenia to just try to get the world right. right. Forget how well you adapted it and how well you told the story. And knowing no matter how well you tell the story, some people like it, some people won't. You may be a critical darling or you won't be a critical darling. But could I get it right? Right. And so I, post-college, had become, because of the number of movies I did, a very good student. I learned about the <laughs> Chinese judicial system. I'm one of the experts in the non-academic world about you know, the Warsaw Ghetto and resistance during the Holocaust. You know, yeah. there, there are a number of areas, presidential scholarship. I read every president's bio, multiple bios, oh, in wow. chronological order. And, so, and I love to learn, and I found I was actually a good student Again, after the fact. You've read every U.S. president's or biography in sequential order? Yeah, in chronological order. Yeah. Oh, my God. Over a five-year period of time. And uh, so anyway, I like that stuff. So in this case, I had to uh, uh, learn a lot about schizophrenia. Right. And, and so here, I work with a noted psychoanalyst, and I just had to do a tremendous amount of research, as I say, just to understand enough, and by enough, the behavior and particularly the language, because the language in the, in the study and in the transcripts, which I was able to get from MSU, is really, really unique. I mean, it's called neological speech, and, yeah. and it, neological, not logical. You know? Right. And, and many people would say it's crazy speak. It's what you hear on the streets often. Right. You know, and could I make sense of that? And could I make sense of that for an audience? Because yeah. if I couldn't, I couldn't make the movie, and if I could— Maybe I could reach one of my goals, which was to take these people from being patients and turn them into people and emphasize the similarities versus the dissimilarities. And so taking the logical step, you treat people well. Yeah. You treat patients as patients. Yeah. You know, people have inalienable rights. Yeah. Among them, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. That, that doesn't mean necessarily being subjected to therapies such as... Punitive electroshock. Yeah. Punitive. Electroshock in and of itself isn't, it, it has its place, particularly, you know, in depression. Right. But, you know, being not, warehoused, not you know, being drugged against your will, being restrained. Right. And can you imagine what it's like to be restrained? You should hear Dr. Alan Sachs at the, you know, who's this noted uh, professor of law, psychiatry, psychoanalyst at, at USC, talk about, and she's schizophrenic, talk about being restrained. My God. You know, and how many people die in restraints a year. Yeah. I mean, it's horrible. And again, it may have its purpose, but when it's done to control people because of a lack of resources, you know, you have to ask yourself questions. So I needed to learn a lot, and I did, and even though the writer that I hired was a very talented writer, Academy Award-nominated writer, yeah. you know, it just didn't work out. So finally I said, all right, I'm going to write this myself, but in order to do it, uh, I had to hire someone else so I would not 
bathe in the glory of my self-hatred. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I, I don't think of myself as a writer who I admire. And I've worked with many very talented writers from Joan Didion and Paul Brickman and right. I mean, really, really talented, talented writers. Right. Uh, and and uh, I'm not in that category, in my opinion. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, you know, it was helpful. I, I found this young writer, Eric Nazarian. I liked this two scripts he had written that I would work with him in a partnership because I wouldn't hate his work as much <laughs> as I'd hate my own, even if it was the same thing. <laughs> and so I couldn't indulge myself. And I'm very entertaining in my self-deprecation. I mean, <laughs> a little vitriolic, but that's, you know, nothing you haven't read from critics about movies. <laughs> uh, but but uh, it was very, very helpful. Uh, yeah. and, and and so that partnership let allowed me the freedom to really learn and to work and start experimenting, you know, with structure. And the big decision was to tell the story of the fourth Christ. There's a, oh, the fourth Christ is the doctor. Correct. Dr. Stone. Yeah, because Stone think, think about it, Stein. Dr. Stone, you know, the three parents schizophrenics don't really change that much. I mean, right. schizophrenia is a somewhat locked-in state. They do develop very meaningful relationships with each other and the doctor, but they're schizophrenic. Yeah. And the psychiatrist, you know, Dr. Stone, he goes on this journey and, you know, he says that, you know, what's in the movie, you know, is in the afterword for the book 20 years after. Right. That they, the three Christs, had cured him of his Christ-like delusions. Right. Which I thought, wow, that's cool. Because there's a little bit of that in all of us who are in positions of authority. And humility and, and remaining humble is not easy when, you know, people are telling you you're talented, you're this, that, and the other. And, and whether you are or not, humility is what makes you part of our planet. And coming to you and asking you to define who they are, I mean, to tell you whether you're Jesus or not. Yeah, well, that's that was one of the really big themes, identity, who gets to decide who you can be and who you can't be. So you put your finger right on the pulse of, of what I was interested in. And uh, so anyway, over a really long period of time, I finally got a script that enough people who I respect, I mean, I've worked with a lot of these great writers, and they just rip everything apart, which is great. <laughs> And after a while, they weren't ripping that much stuff apart. <laughs> so I, I had succeeded in getting stuff that told a story, whether it was as well-written as Aaron Sorkin or Bill Goldwyn or Bo Goldwyn or, you know, pick your writer who you love. You know, uh, it was at least a narrative. And it seemed like, you know, the, uh, the story of this doctor and his attempt to do this and the consequences— they suffer, and he suffers, was in fact, you know, working on paper. Uh, and then, you know, I started to, the process of casting. You made a big decision to name your doctor Dr. Stone and not after the actual doctor who wrote the book. Correct. Um, and he's kind of a, in my mind, questionable character because he makes this big decision to sort of feed into their delusions. He feeds into the patient's delusions by writing them letters from the standpoint of people who are not really writing them letters right. to sort of make them feel more comfortable, but also contribute to their delusions. Why did you change his name? Did that give you some freedom? Or Yes. First of all, the letter writing is straight from the book. Yeah. So the, so there were other things. Most of the things were straight from the book or from the uh, transcripts, you know, or for sources that I had. Uh, but I didn't want to be locked into uh, a, a, a absolute accuracy on Dr. Rokic. Right. When, in fact, there were many things I didn't know. So I didn't want to uh, pretend that things happened to Dr. O'Keech, whereas to Dr. Stone, there were things that could happen that didn't happen to Dr. O'Keech, 
And this goes to my theory of uh, adapting a book. I, I did most of the writing on Fried Green Tomatoes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was not credited. But uh, what I think you do, besides selecting what you're going to tell, uh, is you have to create what I would call a very similar world. Mm-hmm. There is no truth. It doesn't matter if it's a true story. There's no truth in a cinema verite movie. There's no truth in a documentary. Somebody puts the camera in some place. Somebody edits it. Somebody in, aids the sound. It is a very similar world. There are things that are closer to being truthful, but if they don't work on a very similar basis, it doesn't work. For instance, when I did The Burning Bed, which was a true story. And we're okay. surrounded by posters for all of these movies, which well, is incredible. <laughs> thank you That's very so much. so cool. Thank you. So, you know, in that case, I was very faithful to much of what happened. And some of what happened was really hard to believe happened. Yeah. Because, for instance, at one point, the character who was a victim of domestic violence abandoning her children yeah. to the guy who was beating her up. Now, that was a factual thing. It was hard to make it make sense. Right. And I could understand a viewer going, huh? Or walking away from the character at that point. Well, I did it in that case. So here, there were things, gaps that I had to fill in. So I thought, you know, make its own. And then I could also focus slightly differently than Rokic did. I still was interested in identity studies, as he was. But I wanted to have a little bit of freedom, and I didn't want to mislead people. You, I thought this was really interesting. You talked at the very beginning about how you handled people in disagreements. And I read the book Monster by John Gregory Dunn, um, <laughs> which is about him and his screenwriter wife. They were co-screenwriters. Joan Didion, yeah. one of my favorite writers. One, one of my closest friends, Joan. Right. And that's the most amazing part because he says in that book that it started off as one of their worst collaborations and turned into their flat-out best collaboration. That's you know totally accurate and... Uh, and it remained that to his death, and you know, I'm very close with Joan. I see her quite frequently every time I go to New York. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was what what happened. You know, and you get a little bit of it in the book. And John's such a great writer, is that we basically said every negative thing we could about one another in as <laughs> witty a form as we could. I would say they were more witty than me, uh, but we started enjoying the negativity of it until we realized that we really enjoyed this. Uh, facts correspondence, if you will. And and in fact, we were making progress with the script. Yeah. And then, you know, as it would happen, you know, the worst turned into the best. It was a love fest. I mean, they wrote, rewrote everything I did after that. Wow. Literally every movie I did. And uh, so it was, you know, a, 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 to the point, they were also highly professional journalists right. who took separate notes right. and argued among themselves and never brought anybody into that argument, as they should. At one point, sitting at this desk, I actually have a photo of it, I think, uh, they were going off to Hawaii, and there was one scene we couldn't crack. And I said, oh, just go away. We'll get it when you come back. <laughs> the next morning, they left me three versions of the scene with the line, you choose. Unbelievable. And I, and I went, I'm in the inner sanctum of Joan and John. You know, they're letting me choose as opposed to telling me what they're going to do. Wow. How did that happen? You know, and it was it was just, you know, one of those unbelievably gratifying, you know, experiences that you could never predict. Right. Other than it was truthful and authentic. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't want to be trite about it, but I I always think that in L.A. everyone acts like they get along and they actually don't. And in New York, everyone acts like they don't get along and they actually do. And I mean, it sort of seems like you 
and them had kind of a New York relationship where you say every nasty thing you can to each other, and then by the end you sort of understand one another and respect each other. Well, I mean, I think you said it probably better than I could. You know, it's uh, you know, whether that's true or it's a trope or somewhat true and somewhat a trope, you know, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> but the fact is, you know, in a working relationship, you need to be truthful. Yeah. And, you know, however that's transmitted. Uh, and otherwise, you know, you can't be trying to make people feel good when your job is to tell a story that's going to move, enlighten, create questions, you know, at as high a level as you're capable of doing. Yeah. So when I talk about great writers, you know, Joan and John were great writers. Yeah. So it's like, in a trillion years, I couldn't write a sentence like Joan does. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, so that's what I mean when I say, when I write something, I go, well, why bother? Just let Joan write it because it would be much better. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if they ever like something I came up with, I went, really? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it's very funny. Man, you've worked on so much and such a wide variety of things. Uh, is there a pattern? Is there a through line that you see? I think the only through line I'm aware of, I'm probably the worst person to answer the question, is, you know, I believe in the humanity of humanity. Yeah. And, you know, I remember seeing the movie Cold Blood, yeah. you know, Truman Capote's book. And uh, when I saw the movie played by Robert Blake, who's was one of the great, <laughs> what a character. Anyway, he had an amazing performance there, and he was a killer. He was a cold-blooded, horrible killer. But, you know, when he died, you know, by a, a hanging, I think, yeah. uh, it was very powerful. And I just thought, wow. You know, I mean, he's a bad guy, but he's a person. Yeah. And, you know, a, a number of movies like that affected me in the same way a number of books. You know, Res Kolnikov, you know, pick your Thomas Mann, pick your, you know, I mean, all great writers. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, who make you, force you to see things you either don't see or don't want to see. Yeah. And so that probably is the through line. So it's harder for me to deal with things in a gratuitously violent way as, as other people, you know, and some filmmakers are really gifted. I mean, and the closest I come to that is like the tone. I mean, I think sometimes Quentin Tarantino's tone is so brilliant yeah. that it's like, holy shit, <laughs> how could he pull that off? And there's sometimes he doesn't pull it off, but he has this great humorous deafness and this cinematic skill as a writer and as a director, that is just, no one's done anything like it. Yeah. I'm not saying he's the best writer-director ever, but boy, is he singular. Yeah. You know what I mean? In the same way Marty was as a filmmaker, particularly in his early films, you know? Uh, so, so uh, you know, that's, it's hard for me to go to the really dark, to the really, really black, and, and yeah. not see hope in it. Yeah. Uh, so that, that may be a through line. We're... You made me think of this. We're doing a story now, an oral history on the making of American Psycho, which people thought was unfilmable. <laughs> and I know you had some experience with Less Than Zero, oh, yeah. another Brady Snell's book, and yeah. didn't think that was particularly filmable. And I just thought, if that's not filmable, just think how hard it is to film American Psycho. I think it's really hard. And, you know, again, you know, I have a lot of feelings about you know, Less Than Zero, you know, because it was a tough time trying to make it we, yeah. I think we wanted to do something closer to Sid and Nancy oh yeah that would know, have been great which I thought was a phenomenal movie but you know we had Robert Downey who was just flat out brilliant yeah. we had James Spader who was flat out brilliant you know 
Yeah. And so so there were a lot of elements, and apparently the film has had more life than I would have thought. Yeah. You know I mean, you're always, you don't know what's going to you know, stick around or, God forbid, stand the test of time. Uh, but... You know, it was a it was a dark vision, and and Brad Easton Ellis, whatever you want to say about him, boy, he had an eye for what was going on. Yeah, and I admired him and admire him for that. Yeah, yeah, but you did ultimately pass on it because it was just. It, it seems like a very hard thing to. You know, first of all, I was in a transition. You know, I was trying. I had always wanted to direct. Yeah, I had learned how to produce as a defensive you know, a reaction to the fact that I was unhirable. I mean, I couldn't go on an interview and get a job, I didn't think. Wait, what does that mean? Well, it's just I'm not, you know, someone who's got a glib, you know, persona that can say to you, you know, this thing you have is the greatest thing ever written if I don't believe it. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm completely without tact, you know, or guile, but I just don't think I'm really effective, you know. I mean, I, my 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 power to the extent I ever have any is the truth is I believe in what I'm saying. Right. And so, you know, going out for a TV series at the time, I would have rather been dead than to get the job. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, if I had to do that, I would think that I was taking my hope to do something that was good and just throwing it down the drain and getting all these horrible habits, you know, when I hadn't developed my skill as a director. Yeah. So when I realized that at a pretty young age, I went, and took advantage of the fact that I had options to produce and I could make things happen. And then along the way, I learned an awful lot, much more in many ways than I learned at the American Film Institute where I had a fellowship in directing. Uh, and I learned about the business. And like Paul Brickman became one of my best friends. You know, and we had such a great experience working on Risky Business you know, that it was really, you know, I just learned so much from Paul. Yeah. Uh, and I was, I was a really good helper. <laughs> which is the way I would describe producing. Uh, but I always wanted to direct. And so I, I was fortunate that I had enough success as a producer that I could know how to d- option material, develop material. I say know how to develop. Let me put a big humble sign before that one <laughs> because it's always humbling when you try to develop anything. But at least I had done it a few times and seen people do it and work with some good people. So that by the time I you know, uh, you know, optioned Fried Green Tomatoes and started working on it, you know, I knew it was a movie no one would want to make. Hmm. You know what I mean? So it was perfect for me because I like to win ugly. <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean, I, I could have had a, probably a good career as a producer doing commercial films, but I wanted to do films I wanted to do. Yeah. And Risky Business was a perfect example of what I wanted to do, which I thought was a no-brainer. Yeah. And the only no was no one wanted to do it. <laughs> Why would no one want to make Risky Business? That's Two reasons. One, it was too intelligent, in my opinion. It wasn't a stupid comedy. And Paul, you know, was not a known as a director. I got to know Paul, you know, when I was working on the script with him. And I went, this guy is brilliant. Yeah. I mean, his visual imagery is stunning, you know. And uh, and his sense of music is amazing. <laughs> and so, you know, I was totally convinced he would do it. And no one, you know, really bought into it except for David Geffen. Hmm. And there's a reason why David Geffen is so successful. He sees things that other people don't. Yeah. I mean, David is brilliant. I mean, he's just brilliant. Uh, so, you know, I thought we, in our highest hopes, were trying to make the graduate for art for 82, 83, whatever. Not bad. Well, you know, we think we came pretty close, yeah. you know. A number of people we respect, you know, felt we caught a lot of that. 
Uh, and you know, it was it was very unique. Yeah. You know, I mean, now the fact that it had some commercial iconic moments obviously helped its you know success and were were obligatory. But no one could see the Bob Seger, Tom Cruise sliding out on the floor a priori. Yeah. You know, they they didn't even understand what it was. You know, is, is that in the script or how was that? That's no, in the script. Done. It's in the script. The slide. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. fantastic. I mean, Paul was one of these writers like Larry Kaz, and you know, who. They're so specific in the way they write it, yeah. you know, that if you just pay attention and ask questions, it's a roadmap to a really good movie. Yeah. You know, I mean, Graham Yost is another writer like that who I work with, who, like oh, when justified. I direct his stuff, yeah. Justify, Boomtown, I work with him a lot of times. He's a great, great guy, sneaky beat. Uh, you know, I mean, he would write out action sequences, and I'd go, huh, I'm just going to shoot what he wrote. As opposed <laughs> to me making it up, which I was perfectly willing to do, and if I had to, I did. Yeah. And even on... You saw Justified? Oh, yeah. Love yeah. Justified. Okay. So the last season, I did the third to last episode where there was a shootout in the Winnebago. Yeah. And so I called Graham when I got the script. I think I did 10 or 11 episodes. You know, I, I did a lot, and I tried to avoid being involved on the production side if I could. Uh, and uh, I said, well, what do you want me to do with this? You know, you want me to blow this out? You want to make it big? What do you want me to do? He said, no, I want it to be contained. I went, huh. oh, really? Uh, and I hung up, and I thought, that's a brilliant conceit. How am I going to do it? And then I sort of started thinking about it. And I thought, well, the key is Jerry Burns being tied to the bottom of the kitchen table with a handcuff. I could use that comic element to oh, juxtapose yeah. it to the violence. And that was a very violent scene, one of the most violent scenes I've ever shot. Yeah. And I think it was a really good scene. Yeah. You know, and I think it was really surprising when Mikey died. And, you know, it was moving, right? Uh, incredibly. Yeah. So... I mean, look at the juxtaposition of tones there. And Mary Steenburgen, who's never been killed in a movie, said, can you give me a good death, John? I said, oh, I'll give you a great one. <laughs> but, but, you know, it was Graham's conceit, which, again, was so smart and so original, yeah. not to make it about the pyrotechnics, yeah. make it about the characters. So, you know, that's, that's a great thing when you have it. But you would think that when they read Paul's script or when they read Matt Weiner's pilot, for Mad Men, holy shit, can you write better than that? No way. Or Vince Gilligan. I mean, you read Wild, Wilder Napalm or yeah. the script for, you know, Mad I mean, they're just flat out amazing. And HBO, the best shop in town with the most successful show ever, with the showrunner bagging them, passed on it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm looking and think I could teach this for my entire life. I could teach the first two scenes of it for my entire life. It's, it's so good. Just talking about Mad Men, it's so incredibly clean. Matt is so clean. He's so smart. He's so singular. Everybody hates him because he's so smart. And he's a great guy. He's I mean, just a great guy. You watch the show and you assume it's going to be incredibly dense. And then you look at the page and it's just like, this is it? It's so simple. It's so no. straightforward. He's a, he's a once in a, you know. I mean, yeah. the fact that him and Vince came at the same time, or are hit at the same time, is quite really cool. Yeah. yeah. You've talked about, you've been very modest about saying that what's made you succeed is really persistence. Um, can you give an example of a time that you kind of were tempted to throw it in or people told you, give up, this isn't the industry for you, and you pressed on? You know, I'm so used to doing it, you know, that it at this point, it is me. Yeah. You know, if you say no to me, I, it makes me excited. <laughs> you know I mean, it's like, it's almost perverse. And uh, it's just, I've had to do this so often you know, I think most people who do what I do, you know, deal with rejection all the time, 
the only real difference between me and anybody else is I'm a real producer and a real director. Yeah. You know, and so a lot of people produce, but they don't, they're not the financially responsible entity. They don't get their hands dirty. Some do. You know, I actually know how to spend money. Doesn't mean I do it better than other people. I still think Jerry Bruckheimer is like an amazing producer. You know what I mean? And I learned a lot talking to Jerry over a long period of time. I mean, he really knows what he's doing. Yeah. You know, and Brian Grazer. I mean, there's a bunch of Mark Gordon. They know what they're doing. You know what I mean? But they don't direct. Yeah. I do direct, and I do it, I think, pretty well. Uh, so, you know, that's part of a different set of rejections. You know, like when I, when I was on Risky Business, Paul wanted to shoot in the 97th floor of the Hancock building where there was a restaurant. <laughs> we went up there, and, and, you know, the location guy couldn't get the location. And I said, well, tell him we're a good guy. He said, I, he did. He said, you should talk to him. I talked to him. He, you can't have it, Mr. Abnett. I said, you know what? Don't say no. Say maybe. Hmm. Don't say no. Say maybe. Think about it. Calls me up the next day. I thought about it. I, I know you're a good guy and you, you know, you're reliable and, and so on and so forth, but we can't do it. I said, you know, don't say no. <laughs> say, say maybe. He said, all right. Calls me back. Look, John, I'm now on a first name basis. I can't do it. I'm really sorry. I said, okay, I'm going to say you said maybe, not no. He said, you can say whatever you want. You're not shooting here. I said, okay, just, uh, I'll just say you said maybe. So we find out who owns the building, you know, and get them uh. to call the guy. You know, because we are good guys, you know. And, yeah, sure enough, we get the building. And the guy calls me up and says, when do you want to shoot, Mr. Abner? I said, thank you so much. Because I didn't want him to be, you know, hurt by the fact that he was saying yes to us. But there was a way to figure out how to get it. And we were good people, meaning we weren't going to mess it up. We would pay for it. We'd do it in a non-interference basis. We would live with whatever the rules were. But instead of taking no for an answer, you know, you just stay with it. And most of the time, you either wear people out <laughs> yeah. or you find another way. And it's not going the same direction each time. It's you develop a kind of approach to problem solving that ultimately has slightly nimble or creative solutions to problems that seem very difficult to solve. You must have been on the other side of it, though, where you tell somebody no, you know that their script is not going to work. Oh, I did it with Rodrigo Garcia <laughs> on, on things you can tell just by looking at you know, and Rodrigo, I met him at the Sundance thing, and he's you know directed this new movie, Four Good Days, with Glenn Close and Mila Kunis. That you're producing now for Sundance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that looks great, yeah. by the way. That's it's, the addition. It's wonderful. Movie. I mean, yeah. they're so good, and Rodrigo's so talented. So we're putting together things you can tell just by looking at her, and Rodrigo wants a Ritter in this one scene. I said, Oh, Rodrigo, it's, we don't have the money to do it, and it's so noisy and it's such a pain in the neck. And he says, Well, I really want it. I said, Well, figure out where you can save nine hundred fifty dollars, and then we'll do it. He saves $950, we get the Ritter. And uh, and as it would happen, Rodrigo got sick, and I had to shoot the scene with the Ritter, <laughs> which, which was perfect. I mean, you, you couldn't get it better. And it was noisy and blowing dust in everybody's face. And I'm calling Rodrigo and saying, I can't believe you stuck me with this. <laughs> you know, But it was like he wanted it, and he was so smart that he knew to give up something else to get it. You know what I mean? So... You know, one of the things with a producer is you don't want to say no to a director. You want to find out how to say yes. Yeah. Okay? Now, if the director doesn't compromise on anything, you, he or she or they make it difficult for you to do that for them. But if you have the same kind of approach to problem solving in that as I would have as a director, even though it's a slightly different muscle, there's usually a way to make stuff work, yeah. usually a way to figure it out. 
for people who are trying to break in, who are trying to get someone to read their script, who are trying to get someone to give them money for a movie and just keep getting no, I mean, is the advice just get them to maybe? <laughs> That's pretty clever. Uh, I think that the the you know, persist. First of all, you have to have the the personality so that rejection may hurt, but it doesn't stop you. Yeah. Okay, you know. You want to have fun? Go out and do a movie and have critics rip your movie apart and get personal about it. Yeah. Not nice. You got to make the movie. Right. They didn't. Right. Okay? And, you know, if you make a movie and it makes money, that's good. What if it moves somebody? What if it saves a life? What if it changes, you know, the battered woman syndrome yeah. is now a legal defense for yeah. women who are victims of domestic violence because of a movie I did. Burning Bad. Yep. And... That's something that's worth doing. Uprising, wherever that is, you know, that's a story about resistance during the Holocaust. If you read Hannah Arendt and a lot of other people, the Jews went like sheep to the gas chambers. Mm. You know what? They didn't. They resisted in every way they could. You know, 182 calories a day in the Warsaw Ghetto. Did they have weapons? No. Some of them got them. How do you fight when you don't have weapons? How do you fight an army when you don't have a weapon? Yeah. You know, why is it that, you know, the Rwandans aren't considered complicit in their own genocide? You know what I mean? Or the, you know, think of any other genocide. No one is considered complicit in it. Why were right. the Jews? No one is. Okay. So to me, that was something that I wanted to refute with a specific story, not because of what I thought, but because what Marek Edelman thought. Simka Rotem, Kajak, you know, people who lived through this, who had the, the stature, the gravitas to have an opinion. Yeah. I'm a storyteller. My opinion, I hate to say it, is less important than the story I'm telling or the character of the person I'm telling. And 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 you know, I think it's wise to remember that whether you're an actor or a director or a writer, you know, it is the story of someone. It's not you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And your opinion, I may know a lot about schizophrenia. Ellen, you know, Sachs knows a lot more than I do. Yeah. Okay. So when I'm on a panel with her at the Semmel Institute when we're, you know, screening Three Christ, and she's saying, yeah, this is accurate, this is good, this is a really good movie, John, I'm going, good. Hmm. You know what I mean? Because that's the stamp of approval that I want. You know, when Walter Cronkite said to me on Up Close and Personal, you got it right. Everybody's not going to say it, but you got it right. And I went, oh, my God, Walter Cronkite liked it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you know, it's it's meaningful to when you work on something for so long that up person or people who you really respect, yeah. you know, says, you know, yeah, that, that, that really is, is powerful. So, you know, when you're starting out, it's not going to the same person asking the same question and getting rejected because after two or three times, they're not going to talk to you. Right. How do you reframe the question? You know, and there is a, there's a kind of an axiom, you know, <laughs> well, my wife, Many, many years says it. She says, John, you just make shit up and then it happens. <laughs> <laughs> and she says it with a slightly dismissive attitude, which only could come from a, a long marriage. <laughs> and, you know, you find a new way to come. Add a new element. You know, find a, a, a door that's open. You know, it is, it is so easy to stop it. No. And it's so much more uh, challenging to find a way to maybe or to yes. And it, it, it is not simple, and, it, and it's not simplistic advice that I can give. But I can say, if you came to me 10 times with the same question, I'd be, I'd get a baseball bat. It's annoying. 
Yeah. It's annoying and unproductive. But if you come to me and you say, you know, I've got this actor attached, you know what I mean? Or I got partial funding here, you know, uh, look what's happened in the news, you know, doesn't this seem like it might be relevant? You know, whatever the, whatever the element might be, you know, if you put as much uh, intelligence and imagination into <laughs> how you move next, and by the way, some of this is not cerebral. A lot of it's instinctive. I mean, after right. a while, if you said to me, how do you produce? I said, it's my producer's instinct. Right. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, wow, I've got a book written down with how to do this. You know, I just think, oh, I like this. Someone else is going to like it. I hope, <laughs> you know, and then you go based on it and you put your time in and, uh, and then, you know, it happens. But if you try to make something happen, it might happen. If you don't, yet, nothing, you know what I mean? So basically jump in the stream of life and maybe you'll go down the river a little bit. That was John Avnet. So much awesome advice there, especially the part about getting people from yet to maybe. Please don't say yet to giving us some stars on iTunes. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out moviemaker.com and subscribe to Movie Maker Magazine. Or you know what? Do any one of those three things. We would love for you to do that. Hope we'll see you at Sundance. If not, I hope we'll see you back here next week. And thanks so much.